Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm Partner and Head of Education at Shakespeare Martineau. In today's episode, we're returning to the really difficult subject of student suicide and what the legal duty on universities is or should be in these circumstances. I'm joined by Geraldine Swanton, who's been working with a number of universities and sector bodies in considering this issue. Jerry, the Higher Education Policy Institute recently carried a blog by the father of Natasha Abrahart, uh, whose case was the subject of a court decision uh, addressing the university duty of care in in these sorts of circumstances. And I think the main aim of the blog was to advocate for the introduction of a new statutory duty of care on universities on the basis that either no such duty currently exists or if it does exist, it isn't adequate. So I thought it might be worth exploring in this podcast what we think the current duties are. Um, and in doing that, it obviously makes sense to start with the the, the, the sort of higher the top of the hierarchy of rights, which is the European Convention uh, incorporated into our law through the Human Rights Act. So, what does that have to say about duties in these circumstances? Well, as you know, Smita, all um, universities, insofar as they teach students, are bound by the the convention. And Article Two confers the right to life, which is absolute. And in considering that right, the European Court of Human Rights has concluded that that right may imply in certain well-defined circumstances a positive obligation on the state, which would include public bodies like universities, um, to take preventative operational measures in particular circumstances to protect a person from inflicting self-harm. Now, the court concluded that in those particular circumstances, there are general measures and precautions available to diminish the opportunities for self-harm without infringing personal autonomy. So they've said, the court has said, look, there will be a failure to comply with that duty where the public authority knew or ought to have known at the time of the existence of a real and immediate risk to the life of an identified individual from self-harm, and the public body failed to take measures within the scope of its powers, which, judged reasonably, it might have been expected to take to avoid that risk. Now, the court made absolutely clear that that obligation must be interpreted in a way that does not impose an impossible or disproportionate burden on public authorities, taking into account, of course, the difficulties in involving, you know, in policing modern societies, the unpredictability of human conduct and the operational choices which must be made in terms of priorities and resources. Now, the court went on to identify the circumstances in which it believed those operational measures should be taken. And there were three sets of circumstances. The first was where a person was detained in custody or in prison. Second was uh, compulsory or contractual military service because soldiers' conditions of life and service are within the exclusive control of the military authorities. And finally, voluntary or involuntary psychiatric care. 
And so it's difficult to understand um, to what extent the positive obligation could be enforced in the context of higher uh, higher education. And if you were asked to say, well, what could a, a university do within the scope of its powers? A, assuming it could really know whether a student was in an, a real and immediate risk um, to their lives by self-harm. What could they possibly do within the constraints of their powers? Mm. Well, it's what they're, many of them are already doing uh, is, you know, referring to emergency services, referring to counselling, although counselling would be inappropriate in a situation of a real and immediate risk. So the court has been very careful not to expand the ambit of that duty where, in effect, the circumstances that obtain would not give sufficient control to yeah. the public body in question. And, and I think what that highlights is the sort of twin challenges that framing a duty always has, which is firstly, what is it that's really within a university's power to control? Um, and secondly, even where it can control things, what can it reasonably do to mitigate the risk of harm? And so although the court was obviously looking at it through the lens of, of the um, convention rights, that, that that theme of control and what could reasonably prevent the harm is, is one I think we'll, we're going to come back to. And it's certainly, I think, one which is um, particularly, which features particularly uh, in, in the context of a statutory duty that does exist, which is um, in relation to health and safety. Um, and obviously that duty extends to non-employees and there's a duty to ensure that uh, institutions take all steps that are reasonably practicable to ensure that the way they carry out their undertaking does not adversely affect the health, safety and welfare of non-employees such as students. But certainly when it comes to things like psychiatric harm, as opposed to physical risks uh, in, in, in the um, undertaking, the health and safety executive has itself recognised some of the things you 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 referred there to the um the European Court taking into account. So, you know, people react very differently to different circumstances. So you can't necessarily have a single level of risk that that you adopt across all of them. And then because people react differently, and especially where the undertaking does not control every aspect of their yes. well-being, um, it's quite difficult to know what you would do. Yeah. Uh, to prevent that that harm accruing. So I think the existing statutory duty under health and safety doesn't necessarily get yeah. us. And I suppose under health and safety, would you have to ask, is there anything inherent in the way a university runs its business that puts students at particular uh, risk of self-harm? And um, I, I really do not like referring to statistics, but the, the st statistics indicate actually that students are safer young people are safer at university than the general public who don't go to university. So the health and safety risk assessments wouldn't really help there either, would they? No, no, they wouldn't. I mean, that's not to say, of course, that it's not sensible to regularly review procedures yeah. to see if there are some, you know, aspects of them that need to be developed further as we as we go, you know, as we learn from from these very sad cases. But you're, you're quite right. I don't think, uh, you know, health and safety would obviously look at, at probability mm -hmm. of harm. Um, and that's not necessarily borne out by the by the data to, sh to show where that is. Once we sort of move away from the, the convention and the statutory duty under health and safety, then obviously another aspect which has been looked at quite 
a lot recently in relation to this area is the Equality Act and specifically the duty to make reasonable adjustments for people with um, disabilities. And that, of course, was an area where um, Bristol are now appealing the findings of, of, of first instance. But again, if we're thinking about trying to frame a duty on universities, what do we think about the issues that the Equality Act raises in that area? It, it, I mean, it's the, the duty to make reasonable adjustments to prevent an individual from suffering substantial disadvantage as a result of their impairment. Um, I don't think it generally addresses the issue of risk of suicide. Um, okay, there may be occasions where there is a failure to make a reasonable adjustment and the tragic a consequence, I'm not necessarily saying a causal relationship, but a tragic outcome could be self-harm. Um, but I don't think that uh, create that, that, you know, discharging the duty might well have helped. So how a new duty would redress that is, is difficult to assess. So it may be the case that maybe institutions may be much more aware or should be more aware of their duty to make reasonable adjustments, particularly for mental health impairments, um, and that any failures to make those adjustments is about education and and uh, increased understanding rather than seeking for new legal duties yeah and i think question. yeah i think um of course it's not always the case that there is a pre-existing mental impairment that was known or understood um you know it, these things can happen quite rapidly so um it may not even be the case that it's very easy to point to the adjustments that 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 should have been made um, but certainly there is this in some of the recent cases that have that have been reported in the press, a recurrent theme around the stress that people experienced um, due to things like assessment processes and things like that. And again, I suppose, as you say, if those if the issue is that the duties are not currently being discharged adequately, that's what you have to tackle, not necessarily introduce yeah. a new duty. And I think the problem for universities is the difference between um, a hidden disability, disability and an apparent disability or a hidden impairment and an apparent dis impairment. And for universities, I think they're, they're, they're torn between, um, you know, making sure they've proper processes in place um, and, and but not allowing those processes to be too onerous where there is an apparent disability. Yeah. And, and I think, again, that was a point that was made in the in the blog that, that Heppy published, which was, you know, can, is there some way of liberating people from processes so that they can feel able to do the right thing as they see it quite quickly? And of course, from a legal perspective, that can be a bit of a double edged sword because not everyone's judgments are necessarily going to be the right judgments. And people making those judgments are not themselves skilled and experienced yeah. mental health yeah. practitioners to know what the right thing to do is so Absolutely. we have to be a little careful about essentially just trusting trusting this down to individual judgments um that, that, that you know that I've, not only not only is there a risk that those judgments aren't right but that puts a huge amount of pressure on people who don't really have the necessarily you know expertise exactly. to make those judgments. exactly um, and then I suppose finally, it's worth just reflecting on the fact that there are, of course, also contractual and uh, contractual duties of care, you know, to exercise reasonable care and skill in everything that you, you do. Um, and also the standard duty of care in negligence, 
i.e. to make sure that um, those you can reasonably foresee would be harmed by your acts of an omission are not harmed by them. Um, I think when I've looked at cases and tried to extrapolate from them how you would articulate, particularly the duty of care and negligence, I think some obvious problems spring to mind, don't you? So, so first of all, what is the degree of knowledge that you need to have of the risk of harm? Um, tragically, in, in cases like this, people are often very aware of the issues after the event, you know, the benefit of hindsight. But at what point, as the situation was unfolding, should the law decide it is appropriate now to impose that duty to act or the duty not not to fail to act in, in, in some cases? Yeah. Again, so, the case law has actually addressed that point. So, um, again, as, as you we suggested earlier, that the duties of care are imposed only in circumstances where there can be a reasonable expectation of control. And, and, and as you know, uh, duties of care develop incrementally. And there has been a little bit of case law on a duty to prevent, uh, in negligence, to prevent self-harm. And, and the most important of those common law cases was um, uh, concerning, again, somebody in police custody who uh, was on suicide watch and uh, on the penultimate watch, um, the police officer forgot to close the hatch on the on the, um, the door of the cell. And when they did the final check, sadly, the, um, the individual had hanged himself from the, the door. And the court said, look, um, you know, generally, you can't hold a third party responsible for the act of self-harm of someone of sound mind. Um, but there were rare exceptions to that general principle. And those exceptions were uh, the exception applied here in this case because of the innate anxiety of being in police custody and the fact that literally custody, the police had custody of the person in detention. So in that case, the, um, the courts, the House of Lords at the time concluded that the individual himself was responsible and the, the police they were both responsible, but that the police were responsible only as an exception to the general rule because of the complete control they were able to exert over the, the person in in, uh, in their cell. So. so, so when we try and pull all that together, then Jerry, I mean, it's obvious that there are a range of duties that could apply, mm -hmm. but actually none of them probably do exactly what what the the, the families of students who, who who've who've mm -hmm. tragically taken their own lives want them to do and so I suppose just to bring this podcast to a close it's worth I think you and I just trying to reflect on why is it so difficult to articulate a better duty of care and I think we've sort of touched on some of the, the problems haven't we because we've, we've talked about the fact that actually um, individuals reactions to things can be very different and the same the, the same circumstances can provoke quite different reactions in people. And we've talked, I think, about the nature of higher education. You know, we, universities are not in complete custody and control of their students and nor would we, we want them to be. 
it would fundamentally alter the relationship, really. I mean, there is a safeguarding duty uh, for schools and colleges, which has been referred to in some of the, um, the debates on this issue. But the safeguarding duty in schools and colleges only applies to children who are receiving education and training at the particular school or college. And the environment of a school is very different from the environment of a, a university. So a teacher almost has custody or control over the children to whom they are providing education. So it's 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 not something. So I suppose the law recognises an ability to discharge a duty before it, can, it will impose it. And really, it would be an impossible task for a university to take on that kind of safeguarding duty because the environment is so different from um, a school or a college environment where it, it applies. Exactly so. And, and, and you know, the, you, I think that the, the HEPI blog made the interesting observation that until the 1960s, obviously, when the age of majority was 21, um, people at university would have been regarded as children. And we've changed our approach to that. And in fact, in a lot of ways, our, our approach to young people is, is moving in the opposite direction, where we're kind of recognising they have autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. A much smaller proportion of the population went to university in the 1960s as well. So we've got yeah. mass higher education now as well. And, you know, you have lectures of, of hundreds of students. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. a very different phenomenon now. And and quite. And, and of course, so much of, of what we, we want higher education to be about is, is, is about people, you know, blossoming outwards and, and, and kind of uh, starting to have that platform to face their, their adult lives independently so it is a very it's a very hard to apply those school loco parentis type um, models to it and I guess the final point about articulating the duty of care is even if you were to get to the point where you could say there is a duty towards certain individuals and you could say it, these are the things that you could do there's always going to be those very fact-specific um, issues like at what point should it have been apparent and what could reasonably have done been done in the time that was available with the resources that were available um, and so on. And my, my real fear is that um, any duty of care is going to fall well short of what um, grieving families might want, understandably, and well short of what any reasonable institution could deliver. And, and in both ways, it's probably going to create more um, harm than good. I, I agree. I agree. Great. Well, thank you very much for, as always, sharing your thoughts, Jerry. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.